We're in the last um, time this week that we're looking at the book of Ezra. And we're, we're looking, technically, at chapters 7 through to 10. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole of that this morning. We're actually going to focus in on chapter 9. But it's in these chapters that we, first of all, meet the person of Ezra, the person who the book is named after. A couple of weeks ago, it was great to see the shoeboxes coming into church, wasn't it? And see all those, those parcels that are going off and going to support people um, across Eastern Europe. And I came into church late one afternoon when the team of people were packing these boxes together. And several people said to me, here he comes. Now all the work's done. Comes to see how it's going. Ezra turns up as the temple is finished. And we could sort of think, is he one of those type of annoying people who comes in and congratulates everybody once the job is done? Well, I hope you don't think Ezra is like that as we look at this passage this morning. Ezra is actually quite a different sort of person. He's a very scholarly person. He's a person who has studied the law really deeply, really um, sort of thoroughly. And he says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, that Ezra had devoted himself to the study of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees. He's sent by the now king Artaxerxes. Remember, we've had King Cyrus, then Darius. We've now got this King Artaxerxes. And he's sent by him to support the ministry of what is going on in the temple. And he gets a load of gold and silver to be taken with him. Now, he's to sell this, to buy animals, to offer to the Lord in the temple. He also gets, amongst other things, a hundred baths worth of olive oil. I'm not quite sure what that was about, but that's what he also gets to take back with him. Chapter 8 is all about the journey back and the people who come with Ezra. And it's a lot of names and, and difficult um, people. And then we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the bit we're looking at today. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you may want to turn to this. We're on page 462. And I am going to read the whole chapter. Ezra chapter 9. It's entitled, Ezra's Prayer about Intermarriage. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring people with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives to themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the people around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we, our kings and our priests, have been subject to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us 
a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall to protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants the prophets. When you said the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then again break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Not the easiest passage. I think we need to pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask by your Spirit that you'll help us as we look at what is a really difficult passage of Scripture, one that is really hard to understand. Lord, would you um, help us today to apply it to our lives in a way that is meaningful, in a way that changes us to become more and more like you. And we ask it for your sake. Amen. So the book of Ezra is now going on, and it's as if Ezra is, is writing. I don't know if you noticed that. He's now like the, the, he's written in the first person. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he finds what is not only a difficult situation, but a potentially devastating situation. On one hand, things are looking really good. The temple is finished. The sacrifices are continuing. Passover has been celebrated. But the revival of worship that has taken place externally hasn't been matched by what has been going on in people's hearts and in their individual behavior. The people were going to find out that actually outward renewal needs to be accompanied by inward renewal. You know, isn't that always the case? If we're praying for revival or renewal in our nation, we need first of all to pray that it happens in us. Otherwise, those two things don't ring true. You know, we can look great this morning. Looking round, I'm not going to pass any comments. But we can look great this morning, can't we? And we can think, actually, everything on the outside looks good. But internally, are we living in the way that God has called us to live? Sin is perhaps not the most fashionable word in our society, but it's a word that the Bible uses for that really serious stuff that we do that goes against what God wants for us. The stuff that breaks God's heart. Now, I think sometimes we can have very unhelpful images of God, like, you know, some kind of headmaster in the sky with a big stick, you know, ready to, to wave the rule book at us if things go wrong. God is not like that. God is loving and merciful. He's our Heavenly Father who wants the best 
for, our, for, for us, his children. He wants us to flourish and become like him. So this passage, Ezra 9. Personally, I think it's the most difficult of all the passages in Ezra. And the reason for that is that you could read it, and people have read it this way, and come out that it's actually a xenophobic, hate-filled passage about racial purity. Some people have taken passages like this, applied it, sort of word for word, into their own situation, and come out with the most horrendous things. It's also one of those passages that can lead people to misconstrue that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different to the God of the New Testament. How can the God who here says, keep yourself separate, be the God who calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? So in order to understand this passage fully and to understand how it can apply to us, I think we need to do a bit of digging. Otherwise, we're going to get ourselves in a bit of a mess. So let's have a look. What's going on? What's the problem here? Intermarriage is basically what the big problem is. Intermarriage in ancient cultures generally was frowned upon. People wouldn't marry cross-culturally. That's not just in the Jewish nation, but right across different cultures. The, the people of Israel had been told, don't marry those of the nations round about you. It's written in the law in Deuteronomy. One person, one commentator on this passage puts it this way. If they keep intermarrying, this is what will happen. If things continue this way, Israel will dissolve into the people of the land and God's covenantal bride, recipients of the promises of Abraham, Moses and David, will be no more. That's what will happen. Bit by bit, the nation will just dissipate. And the covenantal promises that God has given Israel will not have a home. There'll be nobody to live those things out. Anybody here like bath bombs? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Going to Boots or the body shop and look on the bath bomb counter. You know, I had one on the, the side in the bathroom to bring you and I've forgotten it. So you're going to have to use your imagination. They're round. They're this sort of size. And they're made of stuff that fizzes when you chuck it in the bath and makes the bath smell nice. So a bit like sort of those cubes that you used to get. But what are they called? Bath salts and those kind of things. That type of thing. Now, if you put one of those bath bombs in the water, in minutes, it's dissolved. The water is slightly influenced by it. But only slightly. It might smell a bit nicer. But the bath bomb has come, become far more watery than the water has become bath bomb. You follow what I'm saying? There is one problem, isn't there? If the people of Israel get influenced by those around within a few generations, it will literally have dissolved. But there's another problem, and it's probably a far more urgent and pressing problem. It talks in verse 1 about the neighboring people and their detestable practices. These nations that were around about Israel, they weren't just people who lived life slightly differently. But they were people who engaged in the most appalling things. Take the Canaanites, for example. You may have heard of the god Baal, one of the gods that they worshipped. There's a whole load of other gods they worshipped. They would take newborn babies and sacrifice them in the fire to their gods. They would have cultic prostitution that would make your blood boil if we started to talk about it. They would engage in sexual practices that involved animals. It was hideous hideous behavior. So when God says, don't get involved with this, it's something we can see why? Very clearly. Do not even go near this kind of behavior. Do not allow yourself to be influenced by it. 
God had always called his people to be totally different. To be set apart, to be so different from the nations round about. Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus is in discussion with a teacher of the law just before we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the teacher of the law is, is asking about what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? What's the greatest commandment? And the teacher of the law says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the basis by which Israel was meant to live. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy and Numbers. The law was love for God and for neighbor. Can you see how that is totally at odds with the nations round about? Totally, totally at odds. Also, the people of Israel were called to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. These people cannot be a light if they are being dissolved. They can't be a light if they're taking on these detestable practices of the nations round about. The hope of the prophets, the mission of God, if you like, was that Israel would be the beacon which shone for the Lord so other people could see what God was like and would become worshippers of him. But there's a third reason as well. And it's that it was exactly this kind of sin that had caused the exile in the first place. It was this mixing with the other nations round about, this mixing with the detestable practices that had meant that the exile took place. Look at verse 7. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we, our kings and our priests, have been subjected to the sword, to captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of the foreign kings as it is today. The people of Judah had gone into exile precisely because they were becoming like the nations round about them. Precisely because they hadn't taken down the high places of worship of the foreign gods. Because he'd allowed these detestable practices to get mingled in with the worship of the Lord. And God had always said, if you do that, you're going to exile. If you do that, you'll be banished from Jerusalem. And so what is this passage about? What's it about? Well, ultimately, it's about holiness. It's about becoming the type of people that God wants us to be. And not being influenced by those people round about us who would want us to be something different. It's about uniqueness as God's people and wanting to do his ways and not the ways of those other people. Now, that's all well and good, isn't it? We can read this and say, well, that's what it meant for them, and that provides a bit of context for it, and that's quite understandable in their culture, in their setting. But what about us? How on earth do we apply something about intermarriage to our day, to our culture? Well, I certainly wouldn't advise that we take this passage and sort of take it lock, stock, and barrel without doing an awful lot of work of interpretation on it. What do we do with it? So what? What is there here? Well, the New Testament, I think we need to say, is totally clear. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free in Christ. The visions of Revelation are those of every tribe and tongue worshipping before the Lord Jesus Christ. The church from the day of Pentecost is the international people of God worshipping through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. 
From the days of the earliest Christians, as the gospel spread, racial and ethnic boundaries are no obstacle to marriage, to fellowship, to being part of God's family. And I think on this day when we're praying for the persecuted church, it's important that as God's people, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We stand against any form of racism and all its ugly spin-offs. Because to me, that is about as anti-gospel as you can get. So we cannot take this passage and apply it lock, stock, and barrel to today's situation. So what is going on? What is the underlying issue? Well, one thing we can say is it's compromise. Or two things we can say is compromise or holiness. Sorry, that's actually three things. But anyway, compromise and holiness. Ezra is concerned that the people of God have stopped looking like the people of God. They've stopped behaving like the people of God. They have become far less than God wanted them to be. They're coming dissolved, diluted. They're being infiltrated by the influences round about. Last week, we were looking at how um, the people had got focused on building their panelled houses and weren't actually thinking about rebuilding the temple. If you like, that was passive disobedience. They knew God had called them to something. They just didn't want to get on with it. This week is active disobedience. They know God has said something different, and yet they've gone on and done the very thing that God has said not to do. Ezra 9 is about a problem of people going the opposite way from what God wanted. When we do that, that's sin, isn't it? When we know that God says do this and we do that, we're sinning. We're doing what God doesn't want us to do. Ezra and the people are devastated, or some of the people, some of the leaders. They realize that actually this cannot go on, that this is something that needs confessing, it needs being brought to the front, it needs dealing with, and so they get on their knees and they start confessing. And the confession goes right the way through to chapter 10, verse 17. If you want a bit of light reading this afternoon, read chapter 10. I was reading um, an article on Facebook the other day, and I can't find it anymore. Do you, do you know there's annoying thing? If you're on Facebook, you'll know what I mean. When something comes on your news feed, and you click on it, you think, oh, that was really helpful. I'll, I'll look at that later on, and then it's vanished, never to be seen again. So I can't tell you who this article was by. But he was talking about this word, authenticity. It's a good word, authenticity. And he was saying that it's, it's a bit of a buzzword in evangelical churches at the moment. If you read a lot of Christian magazines or listen to premier radio or things, you'll hear um, speakers say, we need to be authentic. Totally agree. You know, we need to be real people. We need to be honest about our life struggles. We need to be able to have conversations with one another that are difficult. We don't want to be hypocrites or people who are self-righteous who say one thing and then do something totally different. Now, I'm all for that 100%, so don't hear me wrong when I say the next bit. But he went on to say this. Being authentic is no substitute for being holy. Just say that again. Being authentic is no substitute for being holy. You know, I can be a deeply sinful, rebellious, authentic person. I'm just owning up to it. I can be deeply rebellious. I can come and tell you all my failures, but just naming them on its own does not get me closer to Christ one little bit. Just admitting that things are going wrong without having the courage to then come and do something about it and come and confess and repent still leaves sin as sin. 
just means that I'm telling you about it. If Ezra had said, look, let's be honest about our problems. Let, let's bring them out into the open. Let's talk about them as a nation. Let's set up committees to discuss what we should do. Let, let's just waffle on and on. Nothing would have changed. Action had to happen if this sin was to be dealt with. If you read chapter 10, it's all about disentangling these relationships that were causing such chaos. But what we find as Ezra goes through this process is really four steps. He has a realistic view of the situation. He sees what's going on. He's authentic and honest with himself, with others, with God. He then gets to a point where he's prepared to lead the people into confession. And then fourthly, we get what I've called repentant action. Not just confessing the sin, but actually imagining the sin is a plant, digging it up by its roots and chucking it away and saying, we don't go back there ever. Dealing with it. Repentant action. I don't know what you're like in your life. I'm not too bad at doing points one and two. I can be quite realistic, I think, about myself most of the time. Claire would probably disagree, but most of the time I think I can be quite realistic. I could even have authentic, honest relationships with people. But then it gets a bit trickier when it gets to point three, and then point four. Last Sunday night, um, I was sharing a tough questions about how a few years ago, I got to a point where I think I was becoming a little bit addicted to work, and I was um, letting emails sort of dictate everything that was going on in life. And my church emails, it's about three, four years ago, were coming to my phone, to my iPad, every computer in the house. And I was getting to the point where I remember we were in the States seeing Claire's mum and dad live in Florida, and we were over there. And wherever I got into Wi-Fi and my phone had worked, I'd be checking my church emails to see what was going on. And it was becoming a bit of an issue because I was never switching off. I was never getting that downtime. And it's okay to say, well, that's become a problem. It's okay to be authentic with somebody else and say this is a problem. But then you've got to do something, haven't you? If you actually want that problem to stop, to go, you've got to do something. You see, unless we get to the point of repentance, we miss the chance to grow to be like Jesus. We miss the chance to grow in holiness. And actually, we're still enslaved to whatever it was. Repentance, such as we find in Ezra 9, is a complete turnaround a total and utter rejection of that which has called them away from the Lord. Seeing the damage it has done and not wanting to go back there ever. That's what repentance means in Ezra 9 and 10. I've probably used this next quote before, but I was at um, Spring Harvest a few years ago and I think sometimes we, we can be very clever, can't we, as Christians? We can do an awful lot of talking me and um, Peter were down in um, Birmingham on Thursday. Wednesday, was it? Wednesday. And we were down at a BMS conference. And it was brilliant. There were 12 speakers um, with, talking for about 20, 25 minutes each and a whole range of topics relating to, to mission, the world. We even had one on robots. It, it was fascinating. But we do a good job as Christians as talking, don't we? 
And through all this talk at Spring Harvest, there was this one thing that R.T. Candle, I don't know if you've ever read any of his books or heard him speak, I recommend reading him, he's a really good Christian writer. And he said this simply, if you are sinning and you know you are, stop. If you are sinning and you know you are, stop. And I thought, well, that's very simplistic. Surely there should be a 10-week course for that. (laughs) But he said, if you are sinning and you know you are, stop. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Yeah, for us as church in 2016, for us as individuals, we're not living anything like the same culture as Ezra was living in. And I think it's important that we recognize that. But there are some similarities. We're called to live as foreigners. We're called to live differently. We're called to live positively holy lives that nothing can be pointed against. So will we be like Israel was meant to be? A holy people who point others to Jesus. Lives that are lived in such a way that no accusation can be hurled against us. I don't know if there are things in your life at the moment that are causing you to compromise. Things that actually, if you're asked a question, if you know you're sinning, do you need to stop? You would say, yes, I know there are things like that. Christ doesn't want you to stay there. Jesus doesn't want us to remain in that place of compromise. Where do those areas might be? Well, they might be anything. It might be in the traditional big three sins of money, sex, and power. But it might be things about attitudes that we've taken on, attitudes of bitterness towards people, attitudes of unforgiveness. It might be attitudes in a relationship with somebody. It might be your attitude to work, like mine had become. It might be your attitude to rest. It might be your attitude to your friends or your family. But if the Holy Spirit is on your case about something, can I really encourage you to listen to what the Spirit is saying? Not to live in that place of compromise, but to put a stop to confess and repent. Because there is good news. Amazing good news. The gospel is good news. It should never sound like bad news with a bit of a good news package on the end. This is the heart of what Jesus says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In a moment, we remember at communion, don't we, what Jesus has done. We remember that the gospel, the cross, is the place where Jesus takes all our rubbish and he takes it on himself and he dies in our place so that we can be forgiven. And it is simple. It is that simple. But so often we lead these complex lives, don't we? And we get tied up in these all kinds of things that pull us away from God. And so we come to an end of the book of Ezra. It ends with all this stuff having to be dealt with, with purification of the people from the outside influence. Now, if you want to, if you've got time on your hands, read through the book of Nehemiah. The history continues straight through. These two books, up until the 5th century AD, used to be one book, and then they got split into two. So you can read through, and the history carries on more or less the same. But I just want to say something as we end this book 
about this issue here. It's worth noting that as the book of Nehemiah finishes, as the Old Testament prophet's voice falls silent, you've still got four centuries before Jesus comes. Four centuries. That's the length of time between the civil war in this country and and about now. So a long time. Time that is, you know, many, many things change. Empires come and go. Alexander the Great, you may have heard of him. You get the the Maccabean Revolution. You may have heard of that. You get um, Rome eventually conquers Israel. And then you get to the, the time of Jesus. But you know, one thing that doesn't happen is the nation will not allow itself to get diluted again. They won't allow it to happen. By the time you get to when Jesus comes on the scene, as you read through the Gospels, yes, there are many things wrong with the Jewish faith. It's become very legalistic, very pharisaical. But there are still those who, from time to time, we get glimmers of who are true worshippers of God. The repentance that takes place in these passages is for keeps. It's not something that the people will turn their back on. And so for me, it's a real encouragement reading that. You know, don't think today, I can't do it. No, we can't in our own strength, can we? But through the Spirit's help, we can. Don't think there are things in your life that are too big to put down. Don't think there are ways of behavior that we may have got into that actually God can't deal within us. It's tempting to think, isn't it, that if we say, oh, Lord, I repent of something, that very quickly we'll pick it back up again. Now, we may do. You know, let's be real and honest here. Sometimes we do do that. Sometimes we fail. And we need to remember that at those points, God is gracious. And he's always calling us back to him. But in this instance, this repentance was for keeps. If we pray, if we seek the Lord, he will allow us to live in freedom. He will pour his spirit into our hearts. And he will call us back as the prodigal father calls his son. Is that where you need to be this morning? Is God calling you back? I think God is always calling us back because we only drift away, don't we? We always try and drift away. And he's always calling us back. So just remember this morning, he's the father longing to welcome the prodigals home. He's the one who celebrates when we turn back to him. He's the one who is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in covenant faithfulness. He's the one who led the people through to Ezra chapter 9 and 10. And he will lead us in the same direction if we'll just come before him this morning. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I'm conscious that for many of us there are things in our lives that are not those things that you want for us, and it's robbing us of freedom, it's robbing us of joy. Lord, I want to pray that as in a few moments we come and remember your great sacrifice for us, that you'll be doing a work in our hearts. Lord, if you need to convict any of us today by your Holy Spirit, would you do that? But Lord, most of all this morning, I do want to thank you for the joy and the freedom that is found in you. Lord, we give you all the praise and the glory. Amen.